All right, would you turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 2? We're going to be looking at verses 8 to 10 this morning. Yeah, we had a good worship already, and we're going to come and we're going to worship as we listen to God's Word this morning and respond to it. And that's really what, you know, what this time is all about. It's, it's about bringing us into the presence of God to think about what He has to say to us and then to respond to Him with all of our heart. Uh, today we're going to be in Ephesians 2, looking at just three verses, verses 8 to 10. I'd like to read that for us. Paul writes, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Let's pray. Father, would you open our hearts and open our eyes today to see what it is you want to say to us. As we think about this passage of Scripture, it has just been wonderful walking through your word. And to understand the glory that you have for us in the future, to understand your powerful presence in us today by your Holy Spirit, to understand the privilege that we have to be your children, to be adopted into your family, and to be co-heirs with Christ of all that is to come. Father, would you continue to do your work in us to make us more and more like your Son in our thoughts, in our character, in our attitude, in our actions. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine that you were the curator of a museum and when you came to work on a Monday morning, your prized sculpture was shattered on the floor in a hundred pieces. Well, that's what happened at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in 2002 when this statue that is shown there, this statue of Adam that was made by a Venetian Renaissance master, Tullio Lombardo, uh, crashed to the ground. And it happened on a Sunday night about 6 p.m. when this strapping six-foot-three marble sculpture just collapsed. And nobody knew what had happened. I mean, uh, when the curator of the museum came here, uh, this great sculpture was shattered on the floor. The head was severed off. The torso had slid across the floor, had scrapes on it. There were 28 recognizable pieces, and there were hundreds of other pieces that were totally unrecognizable as this thing was strewn across the floor. Was it vandalism? Did somebody knock it over? You know, was this uh, like the night at the museum when things got out of hand, you know, came to life? And uh, no, it wasn't anything like that at all. What they discovered was that the pedestal on which it was standing was weak. And when that foundation cracked, the whole sculpture collapsed. You know, when I heard this story, uh, and it came in the news recently because it took 12 years to put this statue back together and to restore it to where it could be visible to the public again, and they've done an amazing job with it. I mean, uh, uh, from a distance, it looks perfect again. Up close, you can still see the scars and the places where it's been put together, but I thought, boy, there is a sermon illustration waiting for a text. <laughs> This is a great story. I mean, 
when I th thought about that, I thought, you know, that's just a perfect illustration of what has happened to man. When God created Adam, he was the pinnacle of God's creation. He was made in the image of God. Adam was given dignity, given worth, given authority to rule over his creation, given this creative ability, given a mind to think and reason, all of these things that are a reflection of the image of God. And when Adam and Eve sinned against God, they fell from their secure position and life was shattered into a million pieces. Sin entered into our world, and death came through sin, and all of the other things that go along with that. Work became a toil. Childbirth became labor. Their relationship with God was broken, and there was alienation, a fracture in their relationship with each other between Adam and Eve, and pretty soon uh, they began to blame one another or blame the serpent who had deceived them. And one generation later, in their own family, a man murders his own brother. Sin entered into the world with all of its tragic consequences. And unable to put the pieces back together on their own, God provided a way that man could be restored and made new. That biblical Adam was just as dead and unable to fix himself as this Adam sculpture. He needed someone to come from the outside into our world who could make things whole once again. And that's what this passage is about. In Ephesians 2.10, Paul uses a similar metaphor to describe us. He tells us that we are God's workmanship, God's masterpiece. And the word that he uses there in Greek is the word poema. It's an interesting word, poema. We get our English word poem from it. It'd be like saying we are God's poem, but there's more than poetry that's in mind here. A better term would be that we are God's work of art. For a poema was the work of a craftsman the work of an artist and what they did in creating this beautiful creation. And what Paul is saying here about us is that we are God's work of art and we are all in the process of becoming what he wants us to be. The biblical scholar F.F. F. Bruce wrote about this passage. He said, I do not think there is a more exalted description of a believer in all of Scripture. We are God's masterpiece. We are his work of art. Now, isn't that, isn't that pretty amazing? I mean, isn't that some good news here in the midst of an age and day in which we live in which there's so much bad news? You are a work of art, and God is continuing to work in you to make you what he wants you to be, to make us all into the image of his son. Well, we're going to take a look at what that means more fully as we unpack these verses. First of all, God's handiwork is seen in our creation. I want us to go back and think about what happened there in Genesis. In Genesis 1, verses 27 and 28, the scripture said, that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
God blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So here God made us. He made Adam and Eve. He made man male and female that together they might reflect the character and image of God. Uh, He blessed us. He said, go and fill the earth, be fruitful and multiply. He gave us the authority to reign over his creation. And we are to be stewards of that. And he gave all of these things for the benefit of man that we could enjoy the world in which he had made. Man was made with personality. Each of us are unique. Man was made with wisdom and creativity. He was made to reflect the glory and character of God. He was made to rule over God's creation in this world. Psalm 8, verse 5 says that God, you made him, that is man, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with honor and glory. He placed us in this world just a little bit lower than the angels, he's saying. But one day the scripture tells us, do you not know that you will even judge angels? Us? Really? Us? One day, given that authority and power, In Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16, it says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, that God fashioned us in our mother's womb, and he knew all about us, and he knew what we would become, and he had a place and a purpose for us. And the world that God created is pretty amazing, but even more amazing is his creation of man himself. You know, we get an opportunity to reflect on that every time a baby is born. When you see a newborn baby, it is just so amazing. This tiny little child who enters into our world with all of their frailty, their weakness, and yet are so marvelously made. You look at them, and you look at their hands and their toes, and you see how small everything is, and yet how rapidly they grow. And you understand in those early years as a parent or if you're a grandparent and you get to relive it again, you understand how in those early years they're just like this sponge that's soaking up everything. Their eyes are open to the world around them. They're listening to everything that is said, that they hear. They're processing all of that data. They're learning language. I mean, if you just take what's going on in terms of their eyes and what they see, science tells us that it's just amazing. They are taking in an incredible amount of data every single minute of every single day. First through the cornea, then through the focusing lens where the image strikes the retina. It stimulates some 125 million nerve endings simultaneously. And that's processed by millions of micro switches in our brain. They're funneled down the optic nerve, which contains one million separate insulated fibers, so there's no short circuits. And when the information reaches the brain, an equally complex process begins, all of which takes place in a millisecond. We don't even think about it. It just happens. We're looking around. We're making observations. But the amount of work that's being done to make that possible is amazing. I mean, Darwin wrestled with what he understood about the human eye. How could that human eye be by chance? 
I mean, how, how could it just sort of have happened on its own? It is so complex and intricate, and for all of those things to come together at the same time and work is an amazing thing. But the same could be said of a baby's ability to hear or taste or smell or touch. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. But even more amazing than our physical abilities is that every person who, is in, who enters this world is created with a soul that will live forever. A soul that will live forever. God has placed eternity in our hearts. There's a reason that we think that there's got to be more than just this life because we were made for another world. We were made to have a relationship with our creator. And deep in our heart, we long for that. St. Augustine made a wonderful observation when he said this. He said, men go abroad to wonder at the height of the mountains, at the huge waves of the sea, at the long courses of the rivers, at the vast compass of the season, at the circular motion of the stars, and they pass by themselves without wondering. Isn't that true? I mean, we travel all over. We love to see the mountains, and there's something just awesome about it. Or we love to see the natural wonders of the world that God has made and the beauty of the rivers and streams and woods and forests and all of those things. And yet the most amazing thing that we will ever see in this world is you and me, fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God with a soul that will last forever. That's pretty amazing. Why then do men not see it? It is because of our sin. That sin has so blinded the eyes of man that apart from God's grace, we would never turn to him. We would just go our own way in rebellion against him. Unable to save ourselves, we needed someone who would put the pieces of our lives back together. Someone who could deal with our sin and make us whole again. And that's why Christ came. And what Paul says here, secondly, is that God's handiwork is seen in our salvation. God has this wonderful plan of how he would accomplish it. In verses 8 and 9, he tells us here that it is by grace that we have been saved. And it's through faith. This is not from ourselves. It's a gift of God. It is not by works so that no one can boast. Last week, we looked at the first part of this chapter where in verse 5, Paul said that we were dead in our transgressions. That's the condition that all of us were born into. But God made us alive with Christ. When Adam sinned, God did not abandon him. He didn't look at this statue like if you can imagine that statue of Adam with all of its pieces laying on the floor. God didn't just sweep it up and throw us on the trash heap and say, I'm going to start again. No, God loved us so much that he sent his one and only son to die for us that we would not perish but have eternal life. God entered into this world to do something about our human condition. And he tells us again that all of that is by grace. Grace means simply that we did not deserve it, that we were not uh, worthy of it, we were not able to merit it or earn it, that our salvation is a gift that is given through faith in Christ. 
And these verses, verses 8 and 9, are such a clear summary of how we are saved. And it needs to be said again and again that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ, not by works. You know, it always amazes me how hard it is for people to understand and accept that. I mean, through the years, I can't tell you how many people I've asked this question. I said, if you were to die and you were to stand before God and he asked you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? And I've asked that of hundreds of people. I mean, we did it lots in the campus ministry with Campus Crusade as well as in these later years. And I can't tell you how many times the answer people give me is, well, I'm not such a bad person. I, I haven't done anything really that bad. Or at least I, I think my good deeds kind of outweigh my bad deeds. Of course I'm going to go to heaven. And that's the answer that most people think is the right answer. That, you know, well, I did this or I did that or, or I, I'm better than this other person or all those kind of things. It's all merit. It's all comparison. It's trying to figure out, you know, okay, have I made it enough to make it in? To the point where today, the impression you would get from movies, television, books, things like that, that are not Christian, is there is a belief today that all you have to do to enter heaven is die. Just, just die, because we're all good people. And so we're all going to go to heaven, and we're all going to live happily ever after, and that's sort of the belief that is there. But that's not what the Bible says. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, Paul described our sin, that we were worse than we thought we were, and we were dead in our transgressions, and we just simply lived following the ways of this world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, Satan. We were living to gratify the cravings of our sinful nature. In Romans chapter 3, and I don't have this up on the screen, but Romans chapter 3, Paul said of the human condition, he said, there's no one who is righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All of us have turned away. Together we have become worthless. There is no one who does good. No, not one. That's a pretty sober assessment, isn't it? And it definitely runs counter to what the world says. And it's because the world does not understand God's holiness, that God's holiness is absolute. His standard for righteousness is perfection. That means if we are to meet that standard, that means that we would never commit any sin, not one ever your whole life. If you've broken one, you've broken them all. And you think about that. I mean, have you ever lied to someone? Have you ever exaggerated the truth? Have you ever made yourself look better than you really are and you kind of went along and said some things that flattered yourself? I mean, we've done things like that. Have you ever gossiped or slandered someone else? Uh, have you ever said something behind somebody else's back that was really unflattering? We've done those things. Have you ever stolen something? 
Taking what wasn't yours. And it's not just the actual, like, sometimes taking something, but it also, stealing can refer to things like not putting in a full day's work for your employer. Stealing of time, stealing of things by not putting in your best effort. Have you ever been unfaithful to your spouse? And it's not always by having an affair, but it might be by not keeping the vows that you made before God to love and honor and cherish. And I say that just to say that we have all sinned. We all fall short. We all need a Savior. And that's what the Bible is saying here. There is no one who is righteous. And the penalty for sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what's so amazing about this. Salvation is by grace. We can never earn it. It is a gift, and that is hard for people to accept. You know, there's, it takes a work of the Holy Spirit to really see that and understand it. It takes God opening our eyes to see how much we need him to respond to his grace. There's a story that Pastor Kent Hughes shares about a church in England that large church had three mission congregations and those mission congregations, some of them were in the poorest parts of the city, in the slums, working with people that are really struggling with life and uh, addictions, drug problems, alcohol, theft, there are burglars, there are thieves, all of these kind of things. And many of those people had come to know Christ and it was marvelous what had happened in their life. Well, once a year, this church has a communion service where they invite all the other churches to come and they worship together and they have this communion service. And on one occasion, an unusual thing happened. There, as they took communion, they would come to the altar and take it there. And on one occasion, the pastor noted that here was a man who had been a burglar, whose whole life had been a life of crime that was kneeling next to a judge. The judge of the Supreme Court of England. In fact, the very judge that had put this man in prison for seven years, side by side, coming to take communion, and he thought that was just amazing. After the service, the judge was walking out with the pastor, and they were talking, and the judge asked the pastor and said, did you notice who was next to me at the communion rail this morning? And he said, yes, I did. I wasn't sure if you had noticed. And he said, oh, I did. What a miracle of grace. And the pastor agreed with them that it was indeed a miracle of grace. But the judge said this. He said, but who do you refer to? Well, the, the man who was the burglar, of course. And the judge said, that's not who I was referring to. Well, what do you mean? Well, give me a little explanation here on what you're thinking. And the judge said this. It was natural for the burglar to receive God's grace when he came out of jail. He had nothing but a history of crime behind him. And when he saw Jesus as his Savior, he knew that there was salvation and hope and joy for him. And he knew how much he needed his help. But look at me. I was taught from my earliest infancy to live as a gentleman, that my word was to be my bond that I was to say my prayers, that I was to go to church, I was to take communion, and so on and so on. And I went through Oxford, I took my degree, I was called to the bar and eventually became a judge. Pastor, 
It was God's grace that drew me. It was God's grace that opened my heart to receive it. And I am a greater miracle of grace. Interesting, isn't it? To think that he, with all of his kind of human righteousness and status, recognized the danger in that. That it's a work of grace that opens our eyes to see our need for Christ, to see our sin, and to come to God humbly and ask for his mercy and his grace. Have you experienced that work of grace in your life? Because salvation is a gift, no one will boast in heaven that the reason that I am here is because of something I did. It's all because of Christ. The answer will be the same for every single person who's there. It's because of Jesus, my Savior and Lord, who died for me. And faith, well, that's the hand that reaches out to take hold of God's gift. And we think about giving gifts at this time of year, you know, and it's part of our celebration of Christmas to give gifts to those that we love. But every time you give a gift, there is indeed an option that that person has. I mean, they can reject it. They could say, no thanks. They could say, maybe, you know, like, well, I didn't give you a gift or I didn't buy you something, so I don't want to take this and, you know, kind of this merit system or we got to be equal somehow in doing this gift giving. Or there are times when people ignore the gift that they've been given. They might open, take a look at it, see if they like it or not, and then just forget about it and let it go. Or the third response is to receive that gift with gratitude and joy and to use it, to bring it into your life, into your home, to accept that gift. Here's this gift of salvation. And some people reject it and they say, no thanks, I don't want that. Some people ignore it. They've heard about Christ, never respond to the message. It is only those who hear and believe and place their trust and confidence in Christ that are saved. And the fruit of that then shows up in what Paul says in verse 10. And that's the third point, that God's handiwork is seen also in our sanctification, in the way that we live when we come to know Christ. We are God's workmanship. And what he tells us here is that we were created in Christ Jesus to do good works that God prepared in advance for us to do. Faith and works go together. Not to earn our salvation, but as a result of it. If we have been truly saved, then we will live differently. I mean, it's going to show in our level of joy in our life. It's going to show in the way that we treat one another. It's going to show in the way that we use our gifts. It's going to show in our desire to worship God, our desire to study his word, to hear it. It's going to show in the way that we give back to God out of what he's given to us. And it's why we bring to him our offerings and our gifts, or we join in serving in the church and loving others. If we have been born again, there's going to be a difference. If you don't see a change in someone's life, there's no reason to believe that they've truly been born again because God's grace changes us. He tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. We are a work of Christ. And there is a change that takes place when we come to know him. 
When Augustine was a young man, he had lived a very immoral life. And then one day, an old girlfriend, who was a prostitute, saw him on the street. And she called out to him, and he ignored it and kept on walking. And she called out again and said, Augustine, it is I. And Augustine replied, yes, but it is no longer I. That he had been changed by Christ. He understood what Paul wrote when he said, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. Have you experienced that work of grace in your life? As a believer, God has a work for each of us to do. Our primary calling is to follow Christ. Our primary calling, it's right here in God's word. This is how we are to live. These are the character qualities. These are the uh, things that we are to do, the attitudes that we should have, and all of that is a work of his grace by his Holy Spirit. But our primary duty is to follow Jesus Christ. As we do that, then he's going to show us how he wants us to use our gifts in his service. He's going to show us the good works that he has prepared for us to do. And for most of us, those good works are the things that we do as a mom and dad. It's the things that we do in our work. It's what we do whether we are a businessman or a teacher, a caregiver, a lawyer, a truck driver, a volunteer who serves at a nursing home or in the schools, a cook, a waitress, a policeman, an artist, whatever our work is, that's where God has called us to serve and to bring Christ into the marketplace. What is that work that God wants you to do? How do we find it? We follow Christ, and he leads us. If we keep our eyes on him, you won't miss it. You will be doing what he wants you to do. Michelangelo was once asked what he was doing as he chipped away at a shapeless rock. He replied, I'm liberating an angel from this stone. And that's what God is doing with us. We are in the hands of the great maker, the ultimate sculptor, the one who created the universe out of nothing. And he has never yet thrown away a rock on which he has begun a master work. And the way that he works on us, his tools are Jesus Christ. And it's the Holy Spirit. And it's his word. And it's the preaching of the word. He shapes us. He fashions us. We look to Christ as our example, but we also rely upon the Holy Spirit to change us and empower us. We look to his word for guidance and direction. We let that word renew our mind and our thoughts. We listen to the preaching of the word to encourage us to cast a vision for what we can be and what we will be. And we continue to put that word into practice in our life. God's handiwork is seen in our creation, that we are uniquely made in the image of God. God's handiwork is seen in our salvation, that it is all of grace. All the credit and all the glory goes to Jesus Christ. And God's handiwork is seen in our sanctification, this process of becoming more and more like him. We are a new creation in Christ. You are God's masterpiece. We are God's workmanship. Let's continue with him in that great work that he is doing. Let's pray. 
Father, how marvelous these things are to see, to hear how much you love us and care for us and to think that you are fashioning and shaping us, using the circumstances of our life, using the relationships that we have, using this church and the fellowship that we enjoy and the teaching of your word, all of that by the power of your Holy Spirit is being used to transform us. And you know what? It's going to be really fun in heaven to see that finished work and to see our brothers and sisters in Christ who are here today and to know that finally in our life all of the dross will be removed, all the sin, all the selfish attitudes and thoughts will be gone and we will be made whole, complete, a new creation, fully devoted to you, able to serve you with all our heart and soul and mind and strength as we long to. What a glorious day that will be. God, would you help us as we uh, continue on this journey to live our lives fully devoted to Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Today, uh, I'm going to ask you to stand as we close. We don't have a final uh, song to sing, but I'd like to read these words of Scripture as our benediction, and then we'll be dismissed. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages and now and forevermore. And all God's people said, amen.